This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we visit an exhibition delving into small spaces across the globe. We also tour the studio of Edinburgh-based ceramicist Francis Priest. Plus, we talk architecture and more at Jonathan Tucky Design. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. We start today's program in Scotland at the home of Francis Priest. The Scottish artist, designer and maker produces ceramics featuring patterns of angular geometric shapes that burst with colour. Frances's approach to ornament and decoration has landed her work in the Victoria and Albert Museum and the National Museum of Scotland. To find out more about her approach to pattern and a public commission that remains important to the designer, this show's producer, Maylee Evans, travelled to Frances's studio in Edinburgh. I work predominantly with ceramics, but my passion is um, languages of ornament and pattern found in decorative art and design. I like playing around with the formal qualities of pattern and colour and also examining the histories and narratives behind them. There's a key book which I talk about all the time, which is The Grammar of Ornaments, and it was a gift that was given to me as a child by my parents. It's a compendium of pattern put together by architect and designer Owen Jones. It was published in 1856, and it was really a teaching manual looking at, in Jones's opinion, examples of ornament and pattern from across the globe and from different periods in history. And he was presenting it to manufacturers across the country and designers across the country as an example of good design. So he was very interested in design reform during that period. That book was a real joy for me as a child and then at art school I kind of eschewed that interest, studied ceramics at Edinburgh College of Art and started making work that was quite sculptural, referencing architecture, thinking about very formal concerns of line and form and shape. In 2006, I was invited to exhibit work in Japan and also undertook a residency at an international school in Thailand and I immersed myself in cultures that were passionate about pattern and ornament, passionate about craft and making, and it reminded me of this book that I'd had as a child and reignited that interest. When I returned from those residencies, I pulled that book off the shelf again and my work completely changed direction and I started to embrace this love for ornament and pattern. Here we go. Um... He was a pioneer of chromolithographic printing processes and it was a huge folio and additions were put together and given to kind of design schools and to manufacturers. Um, but the book has been reproduced hundreds of times since and it's page after page so it's like a kind of sweetie shop that you can pick ideas from. So more recently, this book has started to become quite problematic because it is a product of our empire and a product of our history as a nation and I guess speaks to the influences that we have taken from across the globe and how we've absorbed those into our design culture. And I think it's that that makes British design culture so vibrant and exciting, but it's also not correctly attributing and not correctly examining the histories of these patterns. So there are pages in this book that refer to savage tribes 
that is very much racism embedded within this book and yet it's still a thing of beauty mm. and you walk around the streets of Edinburgh and the pavement that we're walking on is kind of embedded with that history. It's kind of all pervasive so it can feel overwhelming sometimes but also quite liberating as well to actually start to really understand your place within it and then start to think about how you might work in response to that. I'm very interested in decorative art because I think it's a very democratic area of activity. It's something that we all kind of connect to, we all pick up and use in our daily lives. The choices that we make about our homes, the choices about the things that we wear, these kind of decorative motifs and patterns accumulate meaning. So they don't exist in a vacuum, we all bring different associations to them and they change and evolve over time. I'm very interested in how motif and pattern evolves over time through processes of making and through the hands of different makers, different designers and also different materials and processes. The work speaks to that and speaks to the role that pattern books play in that and the role that drawing plays in that as a means of disseminating ornament and pattern, recording it, disseminating it and then people picking it up and using it again. The grammar of ornament as a kind of, almost like as a process and a method of working has been really formative in how I produce these pieces. I see them as kind of part sculpture, part drawing, part painting part design object. They definitely sit in a kind of hybrid space and they definitely sit in flux. I also like to undertake projects in the public realm. The work has to rub up against daily life and come up against people who love it and come up against people who hate it. It has to come up against function and use. I think that's why I like sitting in this sort of hybrid space between art and design and craft and making because there's lots of kind of interesting tensions and rubs there that you can play around with. So a very important project for me was a, a project called the Tiled Corridor. It was a 14 and a half metre square scheme of tiling for a corridor. So the Royal Edinburgh Hospital in Morningside it specialises in mental health conditions. There's a series of phased redevelopments of the site and this was the first one and mine was one of a series of artist commissions for that building. And I was asked to create informal wayfinding around the building to enhance the environment, to kind of elevate it from just a clinical setting into something that might be more user-friendly and comfortable to be in. And so that was developed through a process of engagement with patients and staff. I introduced my work to them, talked about my intention to create a tile scheme and also researched the history of the hospital and came across a building called Craig House, which was a Victorian era former hospital building that had these two very beautiful moulded glazed tiled stairwells. And I picked out motif and colour from those two tiled stairwells and use that as the jumping off point for this contemporary design. A lot of the feedback that I got through the process of engagement was that people wanted things that were bright and bold, colourful and uplifting. So that was a great invitation for me to really push and play with glaze colour. So there was an okra and a teal which were in the original tiled stairs and I pulled those colours out and then expanded into bright oranges and into really bold turquoises to create this 
very uplifting space that was rich, very detailed, and was kind of a million miles away from what we expect of an NHS hospital. Creating work for that kind of environment feels very rewarding to me. It's difficult and challenging. There's lots of concerns that come with working in a clinical setting, in a hospital setting. But when you get it right, the results are great and the response has been incredibly positive. I constantly meet people who've been through the building and they know the tile corridor and feel quite fond of it. Clinicians who've said that it uplifts them every day and patients and family members who've said the same. And with that particular patient group, there tends to be a sort of longer term relationship with the hospital because of the nature of the illnesses. So people get to know these things and it's nice to think that it's familiar but also that it doesn't wear over time that people are still enjoying it years on from when it was first installed. When you talk to fellow makers or maybe ceramicists particularly, what are the conversations that are happening at the moment? I mean, we're all working out how to survive. It's a tough world out there, so that's a constant question. I think we're all feeling bold about the fact that we're making with our hands and we're producing things with real consideration and care. And I think that that feels important and valuable. But I think we're also having lots of conversations about sustainability our impact on the environment and trying to do the checks and balances on what it means to dig a material up out of the ground, to put it through a firing and to use energy for those reasons, but then also balancing that with the fact that these are very carefully produced things. There's lots of time embedded in them. People are going to buy them and cherish them and not throw them away. So it's a very different kind of phenomenon to popping into Ikea and picking a vase up. And then also thinking for me particularly about design history and about British design history and reassessing that and looking at the influences, the stories behind things that we've maybe taken for granted and used very readily and starting to try and kind of unpack that and respond because I'm suddenly examining hierarchies in art and design and understanding well actually these do come from a kind of very white Eurocentric viewpoint but my passion for pattern and colour which has often been looked down on and seen as frivolous the fact that I'm a craftsperson and making is kind of seen as a secondary art form comes from that place so there's also a real liberation for me. And I'm conscious, like a white middle-class woman, that I'm the last person that needs liberating, really. But we're all kind of working under these hierarchies that really dominate us. So it feels like a very exciting and kind of expansive time as well. But just a lot to kind of think about and starting to be just much more considerate about what I'm doing. Definitely having those conversations with my fellow makers. The narratives will change in relation to the wider dialogue anyway. I've just been very fortunate to have a couple of weeks in Ghana, which is a really fabulous experience. And historically, I would have come back from that and produced a load of work in response to the craft and pattern and ornament that I encountered there. I just know that I can't do that in just such a kind of cherry-picky way. <laughs> you know, I've got to be much more considered about why I'm doing it and actually starting to think about how collaborative working and how genuine exchange is actually probably the route forward. I've had a brief 
couple of hours at a pottery, the Vume Potters, in the Volta region. And, you know, I'm like, God, could I somehow go and do a residency there? And then it would be a proper exchange. It wouldn't just be me coming back and cherry-picking what I've seen. It's starting to really challenge me to think about how I might work in the future. That was Francis Priest in conversation with Maylee Evans. An artist's studio should be a small space because small rooms discipline the mind and large ones distract it. Those are the words of Leonardo da Vinci, and they're words of advice that seem to have been heeded by the Rocker Gallery London, where petite places and micro-living are the focus of a new exhibition. Called Small Spaces in the City, Rethinking Inside the Box, the show examines the challenges and solutions that designers across the world have envisioned when working with shrinking floor plans and smaller spaces. Monocle's Lucrezia Motta went along to the Rocker London Gallery and sent us this report. The Rocker Gallery can be found right as you exit the Imperial War Station. Inside the sleek interior designed by Saha Hadid, visitors are invited into the tiny homes of London, Tokyo or Berlin. Small Spaces in the City is an exhibition bringing together architects, designers, and all sorts of creatives to rethink how we can make our tight urban spaces into beautiful and comfortable homes. The exhibition curator, Claire Farrow, discusses how this all came about. I wanted to present a balanced presentation, a balanced exhibition, looking at the very real situation and the necessity for people to live in small spaces, but also at the developing idea that a small living and workspace, especially for hybrid working, um, is also a very sustainable choice. And there's a, a level of excitement, especially when you look at the amazing array of designs from different cities. For designer Tom Robinson, this exhibition was about creating a cohesive space that allowed each different style to feel interconnected. I thought that the nicest way to do that was to actually design each structure kind of almost as a representation of um, the content. So we have an area in the exhibition which focuses on London, it's called London Solutions. And from there I kind of reference certain architectural elements of the projects that are on display. So we've got this beautiful stepped unit um, which looks like a kind of small island within this kind of quite organic white space. From there we come kind of covering a lot of architectural styles and references, uh, all kind of designed within the same language and material. So that's kind of what brings these elements together but also allows them to stand out against what is quite a really impactful kind of shell, which is the Zahara Deed Rocker Gallery interior. So I think all in all it's come together really nicely. Claire Farrow again. Architecture is about choreography, just as ballet, dance is about choreography. It was a very collaborative process about how can dance interpret a small space. So he begins with um, his ballet practice with a portable ballet bar and the rituals of that practice and, and the functions of the space, you know, washing his hands, putting on cream, doing his makeup, putting on a pair of ballet shoes. But then he starts to explore the space and explore how, how a human being can, can move and the importance, even if you have a small space that is full of things, to have that free, empty portion of space where you can move and you can express yourself. 
Among the talented architects involved in the projects is Paola Bagna, a Spanish designer based in Berlin who specializes in small spaces. For me to design these spaces, I need to understand all the sizes because uh, when I start to design, uh, every centimeter counts from the first sketch. And the creative process is, yeah, exactly this like, uh, diet, like setting priorities with the client, uh, understanding well how the, the space works in terms of sizes, natural light, uh, and all, like everything. So the existing is very, because normally they are like transformation of existing spaces. I really like to use uh, the materials existing in the space, no? so that I'm just one layer more. Colin Chi is the founder of the YouTube channel Never Too Small, which highlights beautiful small spaces around the world. This has helped him understand how even the tiniest home can be transformed to fit a person's needs. Recently I've been looking into how layout play an important part of small space living, which um, for over 150 apartments that we filmed, in fact 90% if not higher, they changed the layout. And um, you can clearly see how people from way of living in spaces change over time. And how can we in the future think of a way to create apartments with the layout configurations that we can um, change them apart and more modular and then design in a more circular way. For Qi, small spaces provide an opportunity to shed the excess of things we tend to accumulate in our lives and go back to the essence of what a home should be a place of comfort, surrounded by the things we love. It's funny because living in small spaces, automatically, you have to rethink every decision you make in terms of purchase, whether you have space to put it. It's not a restriction. It's more about, we know that we cannot buy a lot of things because we might not have the space to do it. That means we choose things more carefully, we buy better quality stuff. You buy the things that we love, we attach to the things more, and then we know what we have. It's more like a curated space. Small Spaces in the City is on at the Roca Gallery until the 27th of January. From Monaco in London, I'm Lucrezia Motta. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture, and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO10 to redeem this offer. We stay in London now to pay a visit to Jonathan Tucky Design, a leading architecture and interior practice that has built a reputation for impressive retrofits. The studio is also renowned for its community-minded outlook, an ambition that has been headlined by Building on the Built, a program of talks which aim to encourage architectural consideration for existing structures. To find out more about this initiative, which has seen public-facing events held in Jonathan Tucky's, to find out more about this initiative, which has seen public-facing events held in Jonathan Tucky Designs West London Studio, I caught up with associate architect Eleanor Alexandrov. To find out more about the initiative, 
which has seen public-facing events held in Jonathan Tucky's West London studio, I caught up with associate architect Eleanor Alexandrov. Jonathan Tucky's design very much focuses on working with existing built heritage and fabric, whether that means exploring contemporary ways of layering existing and old and new, and whether that means repurpose of elements and vernacular elements. Essentially, we are mostly architects. Jonathan is an interior designer and an anthropologist. We're going to talk about building on the built, uh, I guess, as a, as a starting point. But your work is, is physically building on the built in a way, <laughs> which is a program that you run. Explain a little bit about what building on the built is. With building on the built, it started in King's Cross and it started with the idea of uh, showing projects UK based and in London. But very, very quickly became a platform to actually show projects that go beyond what is the general architectural scene in the UK and also to challenge, in a way, what's the practice. Similarly with the community, is to show other way of working, other way of creating community engagement activities. Building on the Build today is developed into a series of lectures and a journal, an educational platform for architects, artists, people that are interested, but also a series of lectures where we can open the office, most of the time it's the office, it's other venues, we use sometimes Zakaba, which is a charity, a non-profit organisation next door for artist studios. So we open up spaces in London for the public to engage and discuss about what we're interested in. That's what I find fascinating about this, opening up to the public, because for mine, a lot of architecture seems to happen behind closed doors, whether that's in the studio or, or in a city hall. Why is having that dialogue with people that aren't your clients important? Our industry has the risk of very much being an isolated world. We think that bringing ideas from outside, having different opinions, having different expertise, also, um, so photographers, video makers, writers, discussing with us really makes our work more interesting and our project more interesting. Beyond making it more interesting, is there something also, I guess, in terms of having community buy-in or maybe people that are potential clients in the future understand the importance of what you're doing? Yeah, our office, in a way, reflects exactly that aim. The space where we're sitting in 2017 was a derelict pub that we decided to renovate, transform and extend and to make into our office. The idea is to essentially create a platform again for sharing the project is basically two planes interconnected through uh, and joined through a double high volume, which makes the space feel quite permeable from outside. The neighbours, the community will be able to look inside, some point realise that it's not a pub anymore. We still have people coming in and asking for a pint and being very disappointed with the answer. But it's essentially a display of what we do. Now the community knows what we are doing. They know we host lectures. We hosted exhibition like the architectural collages by Fred Scott. We had James Britton, the photographer, showing his project in Montreal. That's how we involve the community. And then from that collaboration, sharing, we have new clients coming in, collaboration on community events and activities. What's some of the feedback you get from members of the public when they come in? Architecture studios for me are like these wonderful spaces where you have these gorgeous models. What's some of the comments that you've, you've heard from people? Sometimes they come with specific questions about possible work that they want to do. What is also interesting for us is to see how they interact with the different tools that we use. Model making, sketches, collages, and it's just very interesting to see how people use 
those tools and how that becomes also for us a way to understand how to better communicate out what we do. If we're going to move away from the community and move more to architects, I know you have yeah. other architects from other studios coming here. Architecture is inherently a competitive field. You're, you're going for the same competitions. How important is it to also nurture a design scene in, in a city? Very important. This series of lectures was with BC Architects and Studies from Brussels, having international architects in London. This is how we try to open up the discourse in a way. From that, the collaboration started. We won a competition together with them in Belgium in a tannery. The competition for the transformation of a tannery in an eco-retreat in the middle of an area of outstanding natural beauty and a national park. And that's demonstrate how, yes, it's a very competitive sector, but at the same time, collaboration can bring new work and new interest. Some people ask us whether we are mainly a residential uh, designer of, of architects for residential. I think nowadays the office has more or less a 50% residential work and then 50% is a mix of commercial, cultural and educational. We completed a very successful project we are all very proud of, the Brownlow Theatre for Horace Hill School. And that has obviously internally in the office has shown us how much we enjoy opening up slightly what is the relationship, so not to just a private client, but to bigger community stakeholders, the pupils also at school, the parents and the families. And from there is where we started pushing more and more towards that kind of work, which doesn't take our interest away from residential, but we think that the topic of living can really be challenged and explored at all the different scales. Jonathan's also got a background in anthropology. I mean, how important is it to also have a studio that isn't just architects, but also, I guess, people from a host of different backgrounds? We, well, it's extremely important. We are all architects. We used to be all architects, apart from Jonathan. Again, he has, um, his background is in anthropology and interior design. And that always gave us a different perspective. Mm -hmm. It makes discussions in the office different and touching different topics. I think different expertise really make our work deeper in a way. We tend to collaborate as much as possible with other experts and, for Mm -hmm. example, sociologists and community engagement specialist Mm -hmm. because we realize how that becomes important moving essentially from domestic and residential projects and private clients to bigger state community and stakeholders Mm -hmm. i'm also curious in terms of like how you build your project team when you're entering a competition i know you worked with those architects from belgium but are you are you bringing in other disciplines too or or how, how does this approach work usually there will be essentially either together landscape designers, the interior designer that we now have in-house, there will be structure engineers. I also wanted to ask in terms of like your architectural style or the the ethos of the studio, we've talked a lot of building on the build. When I think of JTD, I I, I think of design that, and I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't sound like, like it is obviously contemporary, but it does feel like you have no idea when it was completed. Yes. Timeless has almost become a word like sustainability for me where everyone's trying to use it, but I think it does apply here. How do you make your projects feel timeless? Nowadays, we will probably talk about circularity Mm. and the collaboration with other architects abroad really pushed us towards that circularity. But we always in the past and the office always talked about, for example, crafting uh, the design and using materials that age well. Similarly, combining 
new elements and or repurposing uh, old elements in a new way mm-hmm. or designing new beautiful details with very simple materials really what what is the main character what can represent the office i think is the kind of fear rouge that connects all the different projects we don't really think there is a style but i think that creates a common ground to all the work we do Maybe you don't have a style, but there's a consistency in terms of the materials that you're choosing and that, that's what runs through it all. Yeah, it's the material we choose, how we work with them. And I think is again, it comes maybe from that anthropology interest yeah. for the context. That's also what helps us working in projects mm. abroad is very much how we look at what is the local vernacular, what are the local materials. We like to work with local makers because we always learn new ways of mm. Mm. using mm. materials and assembling them. That was architect Eleanor Alexandrov there. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylie Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>